12 minutes after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment. And uh, this evening, uh, we certainly have a legal powerhouse uh, as our Thought Leader uh, who holds an LLB and an LLM from the University of the Western Cape and uh, a Doctor of Juridical Science from the University of Wisconsin and Madison in the United States of America uh, with a doctoral thesis that was titled Sexual Violence During Armed Conflict in Africa and the African Union's Right to Humanitarian Intervention. Um, I'm talking about Ndombizozuko Tiani Mhango, who's a professor uh, in the Department of Jurisprudence and a recently appointed uh, inaugural fellow of the Pan-African Scientific Research Council. And she joins me now on the line. Prof, good evening to you, Kunjan. Good evening, thank you so much for joining us you know um i, I was saying uh, earlier on to my producer that um over a decade ago um i sat in one of your customary law classes at Vits. Oh. Uh, i did yeah yeah i did i, I think in 2009 um, oh, wow. so so i you know when i when i think we had this conversation to to have a chat with you i certainly said you know definitely let's go ahead um, and uh, really coming of circle of sorts. Um, but thank you so much for, for taking time out to speak to us. Um, I was saying before we started that you, you're an inaugural fellow of the Pan-African Scientific Research Council, uh, and that might be a good place for us to start. Wh what is that council, um, and, and what kind of work um, is it expected to undertake? Okay, thank, thanks for having me. So the, this new Pan-African Scientific Research Council is, it's fairly new. We haven't started yet. It was initiated by Professor Wan Chakin from Princeton University. So mm -hmm. it is uh, based on the premise that research is not a luxury, but rather a survival strategy. So what mm -hmm. we're going to do there is to collaborate with um, other researchers. It's not only lawyers. It's not uh, social scientists only. It's, a, it's, a, it's scientists, economists, and others. We're going to collaborate, and it's also about excellence in African research. Mm, and mm. as fellows, we are expected to also mentor young academics uh, to be involved in, in the leadership of this uh, scientific research council. So there's a lot uh, to be Done, but it's made about what Africa is all about in terms of research. And it's also mm. because um, after COVID came, uh, the founders decided that we need to do something in, in, on research and also to influence the uh, policy when it comes to what needs to be done uh, post mm. the, the COVID. Yes. Yeah. There's always, Prof, I guess, this, this criticism. Um, certainly by, by people of the public who, who sit outside of the academy, that all of the rich work that happens in research uh, in many of the universities, you know, ends up gathering dust or, you know, sits in a basement somewhere, um, you know, and never is effectively applied to resolve problems um, in the society so that it becomes part of the survival strategy uh, that mm. you were making mention of. Do, do you engage with that criticism? And if so, how, how you know, does this kind of work find practical application um, in resolving some of the ch many, many challenges that we see on our continent? Mm, uh, I, I will agree and disagree with that because if we think about the purpose of academic research, it's mm. about producing knowledge. It's about um, 
uh, having the potential to influence state policy and beyond. So we mm. see uh, many academics going to the to Parliament, for example, where they discuss um, uh, a bill or something that they are interested in, and they do go there and they do influence the policy. But what we need to do is to lift the veil on what academic research is all about. So if we understand that the academic research is about influencing policies, it's not mm. just about us writing articles that are read by three of our colleagues. It's also about um, making sure that if there is a need to change the law, I'm talking about law academics, we are there. So we, I, I think we need to publicize the, sure, the, the, sure. that uh, um, uh, research that we do. Most of us are not very comfortable in publicizing it. We don't like being on radio, on TV, but there are those of us who also like being there, and, and they do understand that their knowledge needs to be used by, by people after that academic. Mm, mm, mm. I mean, no, no, no better place for, I guess, the comment I was making than, than the spaces you work in. I mean, you know, public international law, international criminal law, um, you know, constitutional law, jurisprudence. Um, at a time where we've certainly in this country had a lot of debates around what are our obligations under different international treaties. Mm. Uh, you know, if you think about the Al-Bashir issue, you think about the withdrawal from the ICC. Uh, mm. um, when you think about, I guess, at a continental level, how we resolve some of those questions, um, I think it's something of interest. I mean, you know, Mr. AF, uh, the Africa Continental Free Trade Area, the other day. Um, but what we see beyond the marketplaces is we don't necessarily see some of the dialogue happening around common governance platforms that can allow us to to respond in concert rather than maybe as as 54 distinct uh, uh, distinct sort of legal fraternities, governance frameworks, or countries. Mm-hmm. We we yeah, I, I, I actually I work on the very same examples that you are talking about, the Al-Bashir mm. um, I guess what we need to do is to, we do discuss these issues as academics, as um, uh, with government people such as the Department of International Relations, uh, Justice, but we need to make sure then that the greater community, the greater society knows about mm. these discussions. Because we do, I remember, I do sit uh, with ambassadors where we will discuss uh, the issues. So the question is, what do we need to do to ensure that we, 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 we don't just discuss these things in, uh, in the walls of academia? What do we need to make sure to do to make sure that we go out there and make sure that people know that we do discuss this. But mm. what I have seen now during the COVID, we discuss issues uh, on online platforms. And sure, they sure. have been advertised. And I've seen so many people who do register for the workshops, etc., who are not necessarily within the academic field, but they mm. do and they participate. So we sure, need to sure. make sure that that happens more often. 
Okay, Prof, um, let's pause here for a second and uh, take a quick spot break. When we come back, uh, we'll continue our conversation with uh, Professor Ndombizo Zuko Tiani Mahango, uh, Professor in the Department of Jurisprudence at the uh, School of Law at the University of Pretoria. Stay tuned. 22 minutes it is after 8 p.m. It's our Thought Leader Thursday segment here on Metro FM Talk. We're in conversation with uh, Professor Ndom Zozuko Adyani Mango. She is a professor in the Department of Jurisprudence at the University of Pretoria. And, uh, Prof, before we went to the break, I, I guess you, you were talking about how digital platforms um, and them being the primary means of engagement at the moment have really opened up uh, the possibilities of having people outside of the practitioners, academics, you know, and other actors in that space to be party to those conversations. And I guess were it not for some of these platforms or even COVID-19, that, that would not have necessarily happened. Well, we do have uh, professors like Pierre DeFosso, who is on TV and radio. Mm. I have uh, my colleague, Professor Derek Chadi, who talks a lot about the international laws uh, side. I have I have colleagues who, who are on this platform. It's just that you don't hear me because um, I'm I'm not really in the platform. But there are many of us that do, do discuss the issue. I think now it has been open more for people who do not necessarily watch TV or listen to radio. They will mm. switch on their computer or they will they will use their phone to listen to 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 us discussing those issues. So they, I, I think this this is um, a positive from these lockdowns from COVID nineteen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I guess the, there's another dimension to to this work where I'd be really interested to hear some of your perspectives. One coming as you do from South Africa, but also I guess being on a continent where, you know, the the reclamation of certain rights, you know, after conflict in particular, um, mm. have become something so difficult, uh, certainly for many people on the continent. Um, and many people in this country continue to, to live with the overhang of some of that. Um, but, but this idea of making the law an instrument for redress, an instrument for, you know, um, I guess restitution, if I can put it like that. Um, what's your view on that? Um, I mean, in light of, I guess, the experiences we've seen on the continent over the last 30 years or so, and, and the ability of people who have, you know, under the, the heel of oppression in whatever shape or form, um, have had difficulty in claiming the rights due to them, be it in international law, even, I guess, in their domestic legal frameworks. Mm. Um, what's your view about, I guess, continental bodies and how they can make sure that people get closer to accessing some of that? Mm. So, um, I'm lucky because I focus on the African region, especially the African Union, and its obligations to protect uh, the citizens of Africa, and to also make sure that the African Union member states abide by their international obligations, especially when it comes to uh, the use of force, um, armed conflict within the continent. So what I have uh, discovered through my research is that we have all the laws. The African Union has great laws. Um, uh, member states such as South Africa has great laws. But the problem is when it comes to implementing those laws. I'll give you an example. Um, you talked about my doctoral degree. I, uh, I'm questioning whether the African Union Assembly has a duty to exercise the rights to humanitarian intervention 
in a mm. member state where international crimes are being committed. And my argument and, and my conclusion was that the African Union does have it does not only have the right, it has the duty to make sure that it stops sexual violence and it can intervene using force in a member state where those um, uh, international crimes uh, are being committed. And then when I went through all the decisions of the AU up to 2012, from when the AU was the OAU, I mm. saw that the African Union leaders, our presidents within the continent, they are like uh, some kind of a club where they do not necessarily condemn each other, especially mm. when it comes to who the leader from that country that is preaching international law is. Mm. Um, I remember I made examples of uh, former President Mugabe. You see the, 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 the language that is used in those resolutions by the EU, that it's very um, nice language saying, oh, we urge you not to do this. But if it's smaller states, they will tell that state that you need to stop what you're doing or else we are going to suspend you. From, uh, from the mm. African Union. And then mm. if you come domestically to South Africa, I write a lot about South Africa's uh, international obligations when it comes to international crimes, especially when we had the Al-Bashir issue. And in one of my writings, which I'm now questioning, I have said that the, uh, South Africa has the constitution, it has the laws, it has the institutions such as the National Prosecuting Authority, and the independent uh, judiciary. But what I have found out, especially when it comes to the crime of apartheid, the international crime, mm. that there has been political interference that comes from the high offices of the mm. governing um, uh, uh, people. And the reason that we have not had one person being prosecuted of apartheid as a crime against humanity is because it was stopped. So the issue mm. is how we then hold those people who are stopping um, uh, the international obligations to make sure that they are accountable when it comes to mm, this. Mm. So it's implementation and it's also political interference. And this you is know, the question that I have to yeah. yeah. You know, Prof, just on this question of the political interference, um, mm. on that question of apartheid as you know, an international crime, crime against humanity, um, mm. and really following up on some of those, uh, you know, um, processes or investigations that ought to have happened after the TRC, many of which sat with the NPA where people didn't get amnesty. Mm. What is your view about people who say, you know, peace trumps justice? So when you're in a transi transitional arrangement like the one we were in, um, you had to first guarantee and secure peace, even if that was at the expense of really, you know, allowing many of the people who were victims of that crime mm. uh, to effectively claim their rights to justice and uh, to, to the rights that are due to them. But the, the thing is, we did that. We allowed for peace. There were negotiations. There were compromises. And mm. then the TRC came back with about 300 plus cases and, and said that these are the people who did not ask for amnesty. Uh, amnesty, or these are the people who asked for amnesty, but they were not um, uh, they were not granted the amnesty. So please prosecute, investigate, and prosecute, and that has been done. So it's not as if uh, South Africa just 
focus on peace. We did at the beginning, but mm. we knew from the from the interim constitution that those who do not come out and uh, speak their truth and tell us where they they uh, keep the bodies, they have they have to face uh, the long arm of the law. But then the problem is that they were stopped, even though the Darcy said you need to prosecute the the NPA was uh, said. We are ready to prosecute, but our leaders decided that no. But I heard that uh, reading um, a book that it's because our leaders were scared that if we say, if the TRC says we must prosecute apartheid crimes, we must also prosecute the crimes that were committed by the liberation movement. So mm. that's where mm. we are at. Do, do we create this moral equivalence sometimes? Um, you know, I think of the, not just the South African context, I mean, I think of Rwanda, uh, I think of the Liberian context, I think of uh, many things that have happened on our continent. Do we, do we sometimes draw this in international criminal law, this moral equivalence between the actions of those who are sort of uh, illegitimate governments and, and maybe, I guess, the actions of, of, of credible liberation movements, rebel movements, uh, and people fighting on the other side. You know, when I was young and upcoming uh, law person, when I was clerking in the Constitutional Court, we had to go mm-hmm. and introduce ourselves to the judges. So I went to um, the uh, judge who was the prosecutor at the International Criminal Tribunal for Rwanda. I just forgot his name now for some reason. But he asked me, because I told him that I, I was an intern there, he asked me, do you think that we should have prosecuted the other side as well? So I mm. broadly said that, yes, of course, you need to prosecute everyone that is, is committed the crime, irrespective of the side they come from. And he said to me, being naive, because the other side committed those crimes because they were defending themselves. So how do you prosecute those people? So that is the question that I'm unable to give a, a, a concrete answer to. Because to me, I always thought that if you have committed a, a crime, and if that crime is an international crime, you have to face the music. Mm. But there is that question that, but if you are defending yourself, how can you be prosecuted as well? But hmm. still, inter- an international crime is an international crime. And we have to think about that. So the same goes uh, for South Africa as well. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, by no means easy questions to confront um, and very, very difficult questions. And that's why Finnegan is a shiwe unibandu that uh, certainly have the capacity to deal with some of these questions. Uh, But, Mm. Prof, thank you very much uh, for taking time out to speak to us this evening. Uh, We really appreciate it. Um, And thank you very much. And once again, congratulations on your appointment. uh, And we'll certainly watch closely developments that come through from that collective. Um, But thank you very much for taking time out uh, to speak to us this evening. And go say Okay. That there was a professor, Tombizozu Kotiani Mahango, a professor in the Department of Jurisprudence in the Faculty of Law at the University of Pretoria, and also an inaugural fellow in the Pan-African Scientific Research Council. And uh, you know, when you start to get to questions of justice, questions of transitional arrangements, uh,